This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. You know, we sometimes wonder how it is we should begin a given program, but sometimes an item will come along that just sells itself (laughs) as the story or item that says, start with this one. So it was that I was talking to a longtime listener uh, a few days ago, someone I've known many years, since high school, in fact. He was telling a story about Alabama. Well, in this case, a museum, I I think it is, down in Alabama, that was dedicated to uh, an event that took place in World War II, His father had fought in World War II, so I imagine this was of special interest to him after he relocated to Alabama from the Bay Area. Uh, The museum, if that's what it is, uh, exhibit, I'm not sure, but it it is dedicated to the fact that in that area of Alabama during World War II, numerous German prisoners of war were brought across the Atlantic to come here and I guess, I guess do labor which is probably you know a way better gig than being shot. And in fact, as the story goes, these guys did think they were being brought to Alabama across the Atlantic for the purposes of being executed, which of course made no sense whatsoever. Why would you bother? But evidently that was one rumor that swept through their ranks. And at some point it dawned on them that, well, they, you know, obviously if they're being brought this far, the U.S. military had some other use for them. But somewhere along the way, it's clear that their, their officers, the people that were in charge of, of their units uh, when they were military units, still had some influence over the troops. I know I've read accounts of, of how it was that, uh, that among the, the POWs, there were some that were basically super Germans and, and ardent Nazis and unrepentant, whereas others, I guess, had some second thoughts about the wisdom of what Germany had embarked upon over the previous decade. And I got to say, this does resonate with yours truly, this idea of wondering about whether you were on the right track might, might have some relevance in 2020's America. It is quite clear that our national response to the COVID pandemic has been, well, at minimum, grossly inadequate and, and more properly counterproductive. And yet in the midst of that, a lot of people are ardent supporters of the president and his policies even now. But the part about this, this correlation between you know, World War II POWs and contemporary America um, came to a head in, in this part of the story, which is that apparently as these Germans were being ferried to America, before they got to the South, they disembarked somewhere around New York. Now, the Nazi authorities had told the German populace, and I guess these troops in particular, that New York had been leveled by Nazi bombers. So you can imagine the surprise of these troops arriving in New York to see that it, well, it it looked pretty intact. And finally, the part I like absolutely the best, that after these soldiers got a look at New York City, still standing New York City, their commanding officers, I, I, I imagine, had a choice before them admit that they had been lied to by the Nazi propaganda machine, or 
stick to the story. So what the troops were told was that the New York City that they saw, the skyline, which is apparent when you arrive in the port of New York, well, that was all fake. Now, we, I suspect, I just have you know, no way of knowing, but I, I suspect that most of the Germans looking out and seeing the New York skyline realized they were being lied to by their commanding officers. However, I'm equally certain that a goodly number of them chose to believe that story because it was more comforting. Now, how well that figure correlates with 32%, which is the estimate I've seen on what Trump's devoted base clocks in at. But I don't know. To me, that seems probably about right. Probably a third of those guys just decided, yeah, that, that would make sense. Yeah, it's fake. Those are fake skyscrapers. And I really do think of this because as I was hearing about this story and also talking to people across the country about what's going on, what has really hit me is the degree to which a significant segment of our population just chooses to believe that, you know, that's a fake New York skyline. One friend in Florida described uh, talking to a nurse friend of hers who was carefully explaining that, well, this thing, this thing's all going to go away at the election. This is the Democrats going after Trump. Guy spoke to down in the San Diego era was, uh, a guy spoke to down in the San Diego area was floating the idea that, you know, well, this, you know, this whole thing, you know, Fauci has got a lot of money there in, in this uh, company that's going to make the vaccines. So I had to run down that one with him. So, so what do you think's going on there? You, you think that Fauci is planning to this whole thing? He's behind this. He's a plot to uh, create a, a disease they can then make money off of with a vaccine, a vaccine that we don't even know is ever going to work? His response was, well, vaccine isn't likely to work. That's not the point. To me, this whole thing is getting so crazy that it's, it's hard to find labels to place on some of this. But, but fortunately... Due to my consultation with the Uncle John's Bathroom Readers series, I think I have come up with a um, a word we can use to describe what's going on. I think what's going on is bloganism. And yes, that's a word I'm pretty sure none of you have ever heard of. It was invented in the Soviet Union in the mid-1930s. It comes from Ivan Blogan, an ace Soviet fighter pilot of the 1930s, who has gone down in history as the first aviator to become a dirty word. The background on this is that in 1934, the USSR attempted to score a propaganda coup by rolling out the Maxim Gorky, then the world's largest airplane. It's described as being bigger than a Boeing 747. The Maxim Gorky, according to Uncle John's, had a movie theater, a newspaper office, 16-line telephone exchange, a dark room, a laundry, a pharmacy, and a cafe. I'm pretty sure all those items were really small, but, you know, I'm sure that the Soviets decided that, yes, yes, look at our plane. It has 16-line telephone exchange. At any rate, they flew this thing around to show, you know, what, what, uh, what the Soviet system was able to accomplish. And uh, as they did so... They decided to, to give onlookers an idea of just how big this plane was. They would fly alongside it a single-engine aircraft. So it was that on May 18th in 1935, Ivan Blagan was the pilot flying the smaller aircraft. He was, of course, supposed to fly in tandem with the large plane. 
But Ivan, and I, I must admit, we do not know at this point whether he regarded himself as a stable genius, but he definitely thought of himself as a hotshot pilot. Blagan decided to perform aerobatic stunts to impress the crowd. <laughs> and uh, what happened then, you ask? Well, when Comrade Blagan tried to loop his plane around the Maxim Gorky, he miscalculated the distance and, in fact, slammed into one of the wings. Reportedly, for a moment, the Maxim Gorky flew on with an embedded aircraft between a couple of its engines. For a moment, it looked as though, well, it it might be able to continue and land, but alas, the wing then broke off. Both planes then plunged several thousand feet. Blagan naturally died in the crash, as did all 43 people aboard the Maxim Gorky. The Soviet officials were so furious with Blagan that they coined that new word, Blaganism, which refers to selfish exhibitionism and thoughtless self-centeredness instead of proper concern for the public at large. So we here at Radio Parallax think we've stumbled into a new descriptive term for the President of the United States, and that would be bloganism. I suppose it might seem to some people that we're being a little hard on the President. Mr. Mullen thinks that an equal number would think that we're being a little soft on him. Ivan Blagan only killed 43 people. The death troll, which can be attributed to Donald J. Trump at this point, is well in the tens of thousands, if not six figures. Perhaps the one nice thing we can say about Ivan Blagan is, at least in the process, he killed himself. On this program, over the past few weeks, we have made the case that the President of the United States is legitimately demented. That is on top of the fact that he's a profoundly ignorant man and, well, a bit of a psychopath. And we're not sure, you know, exactly what combination of those elements leads to headlines like the one I'm about to read, but, well, let's just say it's, it's some mixture. Here's the headline. CDC blindsided by Trump statement to deploy its teams to schools this fall. Noted Nick Valencia writing for CNN, leaders at the U.S. Centers for Disease Control were blindsided this week when President Trump announced the agency could deploy teams to assist schools with safely reopening in the fall, a senior official told CNN. Said the president on an August 11th briefing, my administration also stands ready to deploy CDC teams to support schools that are opening and schools that need help and safety and in order to safely reopen. Noted CNN, the announcement left CDC officials scrambling to train up staff to be able to deploy if they are called upon. Noted the piece, Trump's comments are the latest example of a breakdown in communication between the public health agency and the White House. Early on in the pandemic, the CDC task force regularly learned about assignments during presidential briefings, finding out in real time along with the public. CDC officials added the agency is expected to come up with a vaccine plan for schools in at least four states by October, even though there is no reasonable expectation that a vaccine would be ready by then. And I would caution you at this point, that we expect an October surprise in October of this year related to the vaccine. There will be some sort of announcement that the vaccine is at hand, even though that will be a complete and utter lie. And, And by the way, we can't really straighten out how it is this vaccine is going to treat a hoax, 
But then again, since none of this truly ties together, when you go back and look at all these statements that are being made, we just have to say that that won't matter. Although I really didn't want to go there. I'm going to go where I'm going to go anyway. There's a very amusing rule about, you know, debates and arguments that take place on the Internet that the first one that goes Hitler loses. Because sooner or later in an argument, somebody points out, oh, yeah, that's what Hitler would have said. And no, we never could understand how it was they managed to <laughs> claim, the right wing managed to claim that Obama was very Hitler-like some, somehow in their minds. At any rate, I cannot resist pulling out the Office of Strategic Services. That was the CIA's precursor. That's what we relied upon during World War II to gather intelligence. And of course, one of their important jobs was to amass a psychological profile of opposing leaders. And they did so for Hitler. And I just can't resist quoting from it. It said his primary rules for the OSS were never allow the public to cool off, never admit a fault or wrong, never concede that there may be some good in your enemy, never leave room for alternatives, never accept blame, concentrate on one enemy at a time and blame him for everything that goes wrong. People will believe a big lie sooner than a little one. And if you repeat it frequently enough, people will sooner or later believe it. I don't know. I just can't resist thinking of that when we talk about the ideas it's a democratic hoax or that it, the virus will go away soon. Something that they're saying up till now, still. Oh, by the way, as regards this CDC team that Trump announces without, without consulting with the CDC that they're going to deploy to schools, the recommendations released by the White House uh, includes ensuring that students and staff, quote, understand the symptoms of COVID-19, unquote, and require, quote, all students, teachers, and staff to self-assess their health every morning before coming to school. The recommendations encourage the use of masks, but do not require students, teachers, or staff to wear them. They also require students, teachers, and staff to socially distance around high-risk individuals, but it's quite unclear how schools are going to go about doing that. Now, I was tempted at this point to have Mr. Millen pull up a clip of um, the My Pillow guy in a five-minute interview conducted with Anderson Cooper. Made a pretty good follow-up to our chat on last week's program about how it was that Mike Lindell, the My Pillow guy, also a huge Trump booster, helped arrange a meeting between Trump and Andrew Whitmer, a biopharmaceuticals executive. Whitney has been trying to get a, a, a bio pharmaceutical, which they market, approved for treatment for the coronavirus. It's called oleandrin. It's some sort of extract from oleander, a notoriously poisonous plant, which is a very pretty plant. It's all over California, planted on, uh, on, uh, on our freeways because it is very hardy and looks pretty nice in bloom, but it is very poisonous. Campers, for example, have long been warned in California to not use branches of oleander in their campfires. It's one of the few things goats will not consume. And, you know, I, I don't want to make too big a deal out of how, you know, a, a poison, you know, it can be very terrible because, you know, a lot of things that we use in medicine are basically poisons. And the truth of the matter is the key to understanding a poison is the dose. Almost everything's poisonous in sufficient doses. Too much aspirin can kill you. Too much acetaminophen, Tylenol, can kill you. If you eat too many potatoes, it can be fatal. Now, the fatal dose of potatoes, as I understand it, is something like 50 pounds. 
And frankly, for me, you know, 12 or 15 pounds of French fries is about all I can handle. But anyway, Anderson Cooper kept grilling the MyPillow guy about, you know, how can you say this is safe? How can you say this has anything to do with treating coronavirus? And he kept assuring Cooper, oh, yeah, this, yeah, I've seen this. There's studies out there show this. Oh, absolutely. It's great. We're going to get this stuff. It's, it's going to be a real game changer. And Cooper kept asking him, where, do you, where are these studies? Whose studies? And somewhat predictably, he kept dodging the question, but assuring anyone listening that this stuff is great. And I do have to confess with some tiny amount of shame that, you know, at one point I did buy a MyPillow. And, you know, it turned out to be a lousy product. Yes, in spite of the fact that on his TV ads, Mike Lindell portrayed this particular pillow as a real game changer. Now, in this program, we've been talking about how necessary it is across the United States of America and elsewhere in the world to do lots of testing. And once you've done the testing, to do lots of contact tracing and to isolate those individuals. This is very basic, you know, epidemiology 1A kind of stuff. And yet, here in America, we're not doing this. We predicted many months ago that by Labor Day, there would be 200,000 deaths in America. And although there probably are by now, the official tally stands at like something like 175. It may fall a little bit short by the time we actually hit Labor Day. But that is not exactly something to cheer. If you examine how we are doing vis-a-vis other nations, you would see that, well, we're doing very poorly indeed. I looked up, and you can do this too, dear listener, the number of places where we as Americans can now travel, and you'll find that it is a shockingly short list. And And in the instances of countries that are allowing us to visit, most of them require you to have a negative COVID test within three days of departure. And a great many of them require a two-week quarantine once you get there. And that's in the places that are allowing us in. Most places are not. And the reason they're doing that is that, well, in a place like Germany or Italy or France or Spain, where they have managed to largely get the handle on the COVID virus by applying the principles of epidemiology 1A, their public health authorities are looking at the United States and saying, well, things look quite out of control there. Our best course of action is to just restrict travel from there to here. You know, the kind of thing we tried to do against China in January, although we did too little too late. And China bears a good deal of responsibility in this. But anyway, as this bloganism continues to rage around us, we note that a normalization of procedures, the kind of thing that allows other countries to now open up safely, have children return to school because they put out the fires. Yes, the coronavirus is not going to go away. It's going to keep popping up in these countries. But when it does, they have it under control. Of course, I do want to pause a moment to ponder the situation of New Zealand Hopefully we'll have more to say about that as the show goes on. But New Zealand apparently went 102 days without a single new coronavirus case when it erupted spontaneously among the population, if the stories are to be believed. Was this from something shipped in? Frozen food, perhaps? I don't know. There's a lot of speculation going on, and um, it's a matter of some concern. Here's another matter of some concern. According to an article from TalkingPointsMemo.com, the president has got a new top doc. His name is Scott Atlas. 
In recent months, he's cut a well-worn path arguing on TV that America's COVID-19 fears were overblown. He said in May, the cure is bigger than the disease. Politico reported last Thursday the 13th that Atlas, not Dr. Anthony Fauci, Atlas, not the nation's top infectious disease expert, now meets with a smaller group of influential Trump advisors apart from the White House Coronavirus Task Force. Others in the side group include Dr. Deborah Burks, the task force leader, Jared Kushner, Adam Bowler, CEO of the U.S. International Development Finance Corporation, whatever that is, and Kushner's former roommate, and Stephen Miller, who is, I think, White House Chief of Staff, is he not? It's hard to say, all the revolving chairs taking place in the White House. Anyway, you'd think that Dr. Anthony Fauci would be the guy, the go-to guy, you know, when it comes to dealing with a, a pandemic. That is sort of his specialty. But no, Trump apparently is leaning towards Scott Atlas. Now, he is a physician, according to his biography at the Hoover Institution, where he is a senior fellow. He served as chief of neuroradiology at Stanford University's Medical Center from 1998 until 2012. He has published work in the field and trained neuroradiologists over at Stanford. But he's not an epidemiologist, nor does he have significant experience with infectious disease. As he said during a March 31st interview, I'm not anyone's doctor out there. He stopped practicing when he joined Hoover full-time back in 2012. In that March 31st interview, Dr. Atlas speculated that all reasonable numbers point to the fact that our numbers of severe outcomes will be peaking in about three weeks or so. Adding later, I think it's going to be weeks, a short number of weeks, not months, where we get a gradual re-entry. In mid-May, asked about a model that projected more than 137,000 dying of the disease by August 4th, a projection that turned out to be optimistic, it was worse, Atlas dismissed the focus on sensational modulation of a hypothetical projection model. He said, the curves have been flattened. Apparently in April, his COVID-19 commentary really took off. He published an op-ed piece in The Hill arguing to reopen society, asserting, among other things, that vital population immunity is prevented by total isolation policies prolonging the problem. That article furthered his case that the cure for COVID was worse than the disease itself. Now, we certainly heard that in April, did we not? We're, we're still hearing that, are we not? And it's one thing to say it, but has anybody been able to quantify this you know, in economic terms? Put a value on all the deaths that are going to happen and say, well, that is a lot less than the cost to society by all of this isolation. Anyway, as his posts went viral, this earned Atlas appearances on everywhere from CNN to local television to Congress. He said it's not logical that otherwise healthy adults, especially younger age groups, should be isolated or maintain a six-foot spacing. He told that to the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee in early May in direct contradiction of the federal government's stance. In recent weeks on Fox, he's pushed for schools to reopen due to the virus's relatively low risk to children. And because, he asserted in an August 3rd interview, children, quote, are not significant spreaders, unquote. Well, the jury on that is certainly out, to say the least. Anyway, all of this talk apparently has made Dr. Atlas the teacher's pet. Noted the article, perhaps his greatest political asset as a Trump advisor is that he happens to agree with the president. CNN reported on August 12th that 
Atlas is unlike other Trump medical advisors in that he unabashedly advocates for opening schools and resuming college sports. Introducing Atlas to the press, Trump said, he thinks what we've done is really good, and now we'll take it to a new level. And no, we don't know whether Dr. Atlas has been handed uh, oleandrin as the new uh, miracle cure. We'll, we'll just have to see where that goes. Anyway, we've only got a couple minutes left, uh, and we're not finished with Trump yet. It turns out that lost in the shuffle of all the headlines of late is the fact that according to the United States Senate, at any rate, there really was collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia. On August 18th, the Republican-chaired Senate Intelligence Committee released a report with damning details on the extent of cooperation between the Trump campaign and Russian intelligence operatives. Noted the Washington Post, the long-awaited report from the Senate Intelligence Committee contained dozens of new findings that appears to show more direct links between Trump associates and Russian intelligence and pierces the president's long-standing attempts to dismiss the Kremlin's intervention on his behalf as a hoax. The article notes that the investigation by Robert Mueller ended anticlimactically. Although Mueller's report detailed evidence of Russian interference and the Trump team's welcome receipt of help from Moscow, there was insufficient evidence of the so-called collusion, that is, conspiracy, to rise to the level of criminality. Thanks to the misleading spin of Attorney General William Barr, the extent of that cooperation, collusion in layman's terms, was obscured. Well, the Senate Intelligence Committee report made a determination that a longtime partner of Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort was, in fact, a Russian intelligence officer. According to the Washington Post, the report also, for the first time, cites evidence that the alleged operative, in this case, Konstantin Klimenik, that's the Russian intelligence officer, may have been directly involved in the Russian plot to break into a Democratic Party computer network and provide plundered files to the anti-secrecy group WikiLeaks. In the wake of all of this, Donald Trump's efforts to suppress this investigation and to sick William Barr on uh, those in the FBI and elsewhere that have pursued the matter does, at least in the opinion of attorney Jeffrey Tubin, rise to the level of obstruction of justice. Now, I'm not a legal expert, but if you take a look at obstruction of justice as it was portrayed in the Bill Clinton case, and then compare it to the level of obstruction of justice currently taking place in America at the behest of the president, well, we can understand why it is that the president of the Federalist Society, Stephen Calabrese, has called for re-impeaching Trump. He made that suggestion in the wake of Trump's notion that we may want to postpone the election until it's safer. But uh, we're going to go with obstruction of justice. And as we bring this segment to a close, we just pose the question of how it can be the president thinks it's necessary perhaps to you know, postpone the election. We just have to open those schools. Anyway, we need a break. Let's take one. You're listening to Radio Parallax. Got plenty more. Stick around. You can take a bath, bubble, splish and splash. It keeps 